0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on air, a pair of epidemiologists talk about what surprises them about the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: I'm also kind of surprised at how quickly that this—I don't know if you want to call it a second wave or the increase in cases that we're seeing, you know, currently. Um, I really wasn't expecting a big increase in cases till later in the fall, but here we are.
0: And they speculate about what life will be like in Central New York this fall.
2: The biggest thing is to not get complacent. This is a marathon, it's not a sprint. The broad shutdown orders were designed to give us time to get contact tracing up and running, but it doesn't mean we're out of the woods. We're not, we're not completely free from transmission and we're not free from risk, and this thing can roar back.
0: All that, plus a visit from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll explore how the coronavirus spreads with a pair of epidemiologists from Syracuse University. Then, we'll get their thoughts on what fall will be like in Central New York. But first, We'll learn how this pandemic compares to the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, two epidemiologists who are experts in how diseases spread are joining us from Syracuse University's Falk College. Dr. Brittany Kamush is an assistant professor who specializes in infectious disease epidemiology. And Dr. David Larson is an associate professor who specializes in environmental epidemiology. Both are also affiliate faculty members at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, both of you. Thanks for having me. It seems like so long ago that we first spoke about coronavirus, but that was early March when Syracuse didn't have any cases of COVID 19 diagnosed. And this wasn't even officially called a pandemic, so a lot has happened in four months. Um What about this virus surprises you
2: i'm i'm so su- i so su- I was taken by surprise by the the rapidity of its spread. I did not expect the the disaster that unfolded in New York City to happen that quickly and so i I was genuinely
1: surprised by that, yeah, same. I'm also kind of surprised at how quickly that this, I don't know if you want to call it a second wave or the increase in cases that we're seeing, you know, currently. Um, I really wasn't expecting a big increase in cases till later in the fall. Um, But here we are.
0: Here we are.
1: Well, do have either of you looked back or done any
0: research on the Spanish flu 1918? I'm curious about the similarities and differences you know, what we're facing now versus what happened 100 years ago.
1: The similarity is that, you know, in in 1918, there were circulating flu strains before the Spanish flu, but the Spanish flu or 1918 flu um, was a new version of the flu. So basically the entire population was susceptible. And so same with this virus. There are circulating coronaviruses in humans and in other animals, but humans had never seen this particular coronavirus. So the entire population, once again is susceptible to this particular coronavirus. Um, so it's not a completely new virus, completely new ca- class of viruses, but it's, it's a new version of viruses that we've seen for a long time. So both of those are similarities.
2: And the, the Spanish flu really caused a lot of death in younger individuals, um, the very young as well as young adults. And the, we're still trying to understand why that is the case, why it was so different, where we don't see that here in coronavirus. A hundred years ago was a very different time with diets being different and, and micronutrient deficiency that would make people more susceptible to infectious disease. And then sanitation access was different. And so indoor plumbing was just coming into the picture. Um, and so there's there's some big differences in the underlying health of our population in the U.S. right now compared to what it was like during the great influenza pandemic.
0: And our lifestyle today is so much more, you know, advanced or whatever than than a hundred years ago. But from what I've read, there were still issues with people not wanting to wear masks during that pandemic.
2: Not much has changed. Yes. (laughs) On the social aspect, it seems that not much has changed. Yes. Challenging the, the, balancing the challenges between health and economics um, is always difficult.
0: Well, I know epidemiologists study health trends and the way diseases spread and how to control the spread. So let's talk about what's working and what's not working in terms of control, controlling the spread in this coronavirus. Now, Sweden famously let its citizens carry on largely unhindered, figuring that those at high risk would self-isolate, but others didn't need to. That work out
2: for them. I've looked into the Swedish model a bit, and it's it's very similar to the American approach. You know, they didn't have any state mandated um, social distancing, unlike their neighbors. They had voluntary mask um, mask use, just like the U.S. throughout much of the U.S. What we've seen is that they have incredibly high mortality compared to their neighbors, and most interestingly, is their economic growth or, or decline is greater than their neighbors and so they're at a negative 10 percent economic decline whereas their neighbors are at negative five percent and that speaks to the importance of fix the health of the people first and the economy will fall in line behind that it's not a choice between health or the economy it's always a choice for health first and then the economy can't thrive without it
0: well, which nation has done the best job controlling the spread, and what measures did they
2: use? So, two two nations come to mind: New Zealand, right? I I, I would love to be in New Zealand right now. They are completely coronavirus free. They went with aggressive social distancing, with only ten cases reported in the country. So they shut down their their uh, their social contacts very early and very aggressively. They ramped up contact tracing and testing and very, a very coordinated national response. And now they are completely free. They don't have to wear masks. They don't have to do anything. They have full full attendance at sports arenas. The schools are open and they need to manage the re-importation of cases, which they're doing well.
0: Let me ask you about um, New Zealand. Did they go into like a full lockdown?
2: They were pretty strict in, in certain areas, yes. Okay. Similar to, I would say, similar to what New York went through, except that they started when they had ten cases in the country. and New York, started when we had tens of thousands of cases in the state, maybe hundreds of thousands of cases.
0: You also know. mentioned Vietnam,
2: and so Vietnam has also eliminated transmission, and Vietnam imposed a very strict um, state-mandated lockdown of certain cities where transmission was occurring. A very coordinated federal response. Um, They've mobilized their community health workers to help with contact tracing and the and isolation of cases. And they've eliminated transmission within the country. And so they have no transmission more or anymore.
0: Wow. Well, what's your assessment of how the pandemic is being managed in New York State?
2: Um,
1: so far it seems to be managed pretty well in New York State. The problem is, um, you know, there there's very open borders between the states in the United States. Um, and, you know, we can't have this isolated response in one area and a completely different response in a neighboring state or close by state or even far away states because of the risk of importation of cases, right? So your immediate risk is related to what's going on in your area, but there's also a lot of risk for importation um, and You know, the countries that have done the best job of controlling it had, as David said, you know, coordinated national responses. So in New
0: York State, the governor announced that people coming from certain states that have the high levels of COVID-19 are supposed to quarantine for two weeks. Is that going to be effective at, I mean, it's an attempt to keep this from spreading into New York, but do you think it could be effective?
1: it could be effective if everyone does it. Um, And so that's what uh, my main concern is. Uh, You know, it's difficult. And when you think about people driving through the state, maybe, um, you know, while the risk of transmission is relatively low, if they're just stopping for a few minutes at a rest stop or or something like that, it could could still happen. So, um, you know, I think the 14-day quarantine could be effective if everyone follows it but I'm not sure how well or how easily it will be for people to follow
0: that. In terms of the numbers, which are the most important numbers to study to understand the impact COVID-19 is having? What are the numbers that
1: epidemiologists look at? Well, so there's the the common ones that we're all talking about, right? So test positivity, uh, mortality rate. Um, So those are kind of the biggest numbers that get the most attention, but there's a lot of other uh, ones too. So, you know, not just the number of tests, but test positivity, testing percent for the entire population, right? So, not just raw numbers of tests done, but per capita tests done. Um, What else, Steven?
2: And and it's, and it depends, the numbers depend on what you're trying to communicate or what you're Mm -hmm. trying to And so we fixated throughout in the country on deaths. And, and the question of, is this a deadly virus? Does this virus warrant the, the, the broad social and economic pain that we're going through to fight it? And and when we look at deaths, maybe in, in isolation, maybe that's not the case. But then we need to look at is- the hospitalizations. We need to look at long-term consequences for infections. We're starting now to get understanding that this virus is nasty, and it will mess up um, a host of different organ systems throughout the body, including cardiovascular, pulmonary, kidney, and even even the brain. And so the hospitalizations are important. If we're thinking about how well an area is doing, my my favorite metric is the test positivity. And if that is below one percent, I'm I'm pretty pleased with how how well that area is doing. And I start to get concerned above one percent, and then. it's like alarm bells going off really, really bad.
0: So test positivity. So is that the number of, out of all the people who are tested everywhere in a hospital, in a community setting or or doctor's office, the the number of those that end up being positive, is that what that number is? Yes. So that's going to fluctuate based on how many people get tested, right?
2: Yeah. So ideally that number would be broken out into two. The first one being the treatment seeking individuals, people who go get a test because they're, they're ill. And then you have test positivity of people who are seeking treatment. And then you have people who are screened. And so before you get an operation, um, maybe you had, a, you, you had contact with someone, so you go get a test because you wanna make sure you don't have an infection. Um, but throughout the country and in New York State, we, we've lumped those two together. And so that's the, it's, it's kind of combined everybody combined in one bucket
0: so as long as it's below one percent you said that's a pretty safe cushion
2: that's where i'm comfortable yes
0: yeah generally you're listening to upstate's health link on air when we come back we'll explore the current understanding about how coronavirus spreads Welcome back to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host Amber Smith speaking with epidemiologists Dr. Brittany Kamush and Dr. David Larson from Syracuse University's Falk College. So, what is the current understanding about how the virus spreads? Are epidemiologists still considering this a respiratory disease because I've read that it, you know, affects many other organs besides the lungs. But is it still so. considered respiratory?
1: Well, so epidemiologists and clinicians tend to classify virus a little bit differently. So epidemiologists are more concerned with how it's spread and where you get it from, so the sources. So I think most epidemiologists would still consider this a respiratory virus in that you catch it from other people's, you know, breathing and spit and sputum and things like that. Um, While clinicians tend to classify viruses based on Their symptoms and clinical presentation. And so I think most of them are still, you know, we still see a lot of respiratory problems. But as we mentioned earlier in the program, the virus does affect a lot of different organs, um, including the cardiovascular system, um, and can have, you know, some pretty serious long term effects. And I don't think we fully understand exactly the extent of all the long term effects of of the infection.
0: So airborne droplets. Uh, if those airborne droplets land on hard surfaces and someone else comes and touch that hard surface, it can spread that way
2: too, right? It, it can. That doesn't appear yeah. to be one of the major modes of transmission. And so the, the surface contact right now appears to be less important than some of the other transmission modes. And so um, the riskiest, the riskiest uh, behaviors are indoor confined spaces and crowded, and crowded uh, situations.
0: Okay. And is it still thought to have a five to seven day incubation?
1: Yes, that's the latest I've read.
0: So if I'm exposed to someone, it may be five to seven days or longer or shorter um, before I
1: start having symptoms. Correct. Yeah. So the five to seven days is kind of the average. The range is uh, two to 14. And so that's where that 14 day quarantine comes from, right? So well, um, mo- 99.9% of people if they're infected will start showing symptoms by 14 days after um, exposure. Yes. And most will be in the more in the five to seven day range. Go ahead, Dr. Larson,
2: and importantly, during this time, you're going to be infectious. And so even before you have symptoms, you start to shed virus, and infect others And the majority of transmission actually occurs before the symptomatic period. And and a lot of that's because of people's behavior once they're sick, they're they're isolating themselves or they're and and not spreading it around.
0: But that's why the 14-day quarantine. I mean there that's not just a random get that's the reason behind it, right? Yeah,
2: there's Correct. science behind all the numbers.
0: So, what is case fatality rate and has that changed since the beginning cuz I think at the beginning of this uh pandemic it was thought to be like 2 or 3%. Um what is case fatality rate and then what is the number that that it currently is?
2: So, so
1: the case fatality rate is the number of people who who have the number of people who die from the disease over the number of people who have the disease. Um and so at the beginning we weren't very good at finding cases. Um So our denominator of our case fatality rate was too small. Um, And so, but we were a lot easier to find people who die from the disease, right? They go to the hospital, they get tested. um, And so uh, that can affect what the case fatality rate looks like uh, based on our testing uh, availability and um, testing behaviors.
2: And then we've also gotten better at treating the disease. So clinicians have improved their treatment, and so it's, we've improved that way, Rem, remdesivir appears to offer some benefit as an antiviral, antiviral, and then proning, or putting someone on their stomach when they, they're low on oxygen appears to be um, quite beneficial for, clinic, for people who can't breathe.
0: All right. So can you talk about contact tracing? How important are contact tracers in getting a pandemic under control?
1: Well, in this case, contact tracers are very important. They're, they're vital because, as we mentioned earlier, you can be infectious before you start showing symptoms. And so we need to know who the ca- current cases came in contact with so we can find all their contacts and get them to be quarantined or isolated before they start showing symptoms. And that's how we stop the spread. Right? This goes directly from person to person. Right, There's no animal or insect reservoir in between. And so if we can cut off all the people who are sick and stop them from spreading it to anyone else, um, then the pandemic will be over. So the contact tracers are vital for this.
0: So that's why we see periodically on the news that uh, there was a potential exposure at a certain business. Mm-hmm. Because how else would you find people who might have stopped into that business on a particular day, right?
1: Right. I mean, there have been some ideas floated around, but a lot of people find them invasive of their privacy, you know, using cell phones and different apps and and things like that to figure out if you've come into contact or close contact or, um, you know, more casual contact, crossing somebody on the street, for example, would not be a a close contact event. Um, But I don't think there's any widespread use of that kind of data at this point.
0: So very early on, we were told not to wear masks, but now most all health officials are encouraging everyone to wear, wear a mask in public. Is there science that backs up the effectiveness of masks on reducing the spread?
1: Yes, um, absolutely. So the most of the transmission will occur from these you know large droplets that don't go very far away from you. And so the masks are extremely effective at stopping those, those large droplets from, from leaving your vicinity, right? So it keeps everything close to you and prevents a lot of the transmission.
2: And the, the, and the miscommunication on masks was a misstep, a public health misstep, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. it is uh, a mistake that was made. And it's such a simple thing to wear a mask. You know, they're uncomfortable. I don't like wearing one, um, but it's in the end of the day, if that can help my kids get back to school, I'll wear a mask everywhere, right? And so it's something that, you know, we should all buckle down and, and do um, to, to decrease transmission.
0: The um, the misstep, is that uh, typical of a pandemic that's unfolding in real time, that there's going to be public health, you know, says something one day and, and is saying the opposite or something different days later? Is that,
2: I mean, is that to be expected? Well, when... In a pandemic, the science is always unfolding, right? And the, the science is always developing, and those aren't missteps, that's just learning. And so if we've learned that contact surfaces may not be as important for transmission, that's an, evolved, an evolution of the science, and it's just learning because it's new. As we've learned, the infection fatality ratio is, is a bit lower than maybe 1%, and the case fatality ratio is lower um, than previously being 3%, that's just learning. Um, the misstep was the miscommunication that masks were not effective to try to preserve masks. And so that could have been handled in a better way.
0: So. Well, let me ask you about social distancing. Is there science behind this six-foot number that, you know, we're supposed to keep physical distance of six feet? Um, and does that apply
1: the same indoors as it does outdoors? So the six feet number comes from those large droplets. So those large droplets that contain a lot of virus typically fall out of the air before six feet away from you. So that's where that six foot number comes from. So the large droplets, you know, you cough or sneeze, the big the big droplets will land and get out of the air and not be infectious um, by about six feet. So that's where that number comes from. Um, but we are seeing now, you know, that the virus could potentially be transmitted through aerosolized droplets. So these are really small droplets that can go further and stay in the air longer. And so that's why the risk indoors is different than outdoors. So the large droplets will likely still fall out of the air, you know, within six feet indoors. But the aerosolized droplet or um, particles can stay in the air longer, both inside and outside, but they can build up inside um uh m- more easily than they can outside where they'll be dispersed you know quite quickly so i've
0: also seen um businesses that are taking people's temperatures before they let them come in is that effective
2: i i wonder about the effectiveness of that um the the goal is to catch people before to catch people who may have an infection and say that you know you you may be infected so to go get tested um the it doesn't hurt by any means, but it's a question as to how many um, infections that would actually catch
0: and not everyone gets a fever with this or or gets it early enough that it right
2: no Correct. so it's it's not a it's not a failsafe and it's definitely flawed such that it can be um, it, it it won't catch a lot of infections
0: right. We have to take a short break, but when HealthLink on Air returns, a look at how this pandemic might end. Welcome back to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Syracuse University epidemiologist Dr. David Larson and Dr. Brittany Kamush about the pandemic. Can you predict with any degree of
1: confidence how this is likely to end? No. No. Um, so if we look at the 1918 influenza, even though the pandemic technically ended, right, that flu strain was circulating. A major circulating influenza in the population for decades after that. Um, so, while the pandemic ended, there the cases still continued year after year after year. So, I'm not, not sure if that would be the case with this coronavirus or not.
0: So, you said my- when the pandemic ended, is that just numbers as to when it wasn't spreading as much? I mean, how do we know it's over?
2: So, so my guess is that if, if we had no vaccine, no, no, uh, no intervention in sight, then it would take four to five years before there's sufficient, um, everybody within the United States or, has been exposed to this virus, and there's some immunity within the population, and then you'd see this coronavirus would still circulate in the population, but it would not cause the devastation that it causes now. And so the devastation it causes now is due to its novelty that we've never seen it before. And over time, you know, if this was if this played out naturally, maybe four to five years, we would see that this coronavirus would be just another one of the viruses causing the common cold, and with some um, very very small percentage, you know, less than 0001 percent, that would have severe complications from.
0: It. So is that what herd immunity is? Is that what you just described?
2: Well, it's not, that's not quite what herd immunity is. That's a transition from a novel virus to, or a novel pathogen to become endemic in a population or just natural in a population. Herd immunity is a, is a force that, that counteracts against transmission. And so whenever you have transmission in a population, if somebody is immune to the, to the pathogen, that's a dead-end chain of transmission. And so as more and more people pick up immunity because they've been exposed to the pathogen, or because they've been vaccinated, then you have more and more dead-end transmissions and transmission naturally declines.
0: Well, you mentioned vaccination. If we had a vaccine that was effective, it would, it, it would end quicker than four or five years, right?
1: Correct, because that um, and herd immunity uh, would build up much faster than if we waited for natural exposure or that natural immunity um would build up in the population much faster with a vaccine.
2: So, and, and we would see less less uh mortality, less uh devastation from the virus as well.
0: When we turn on the news and we see all of these numbers all over the the nation, it's tempting to feel like well so many people already have this, aren't we? Don't we have herd immunity now? How far off are we from actually having herd immunity?
1: quite far. We are,
2: we are years away Mm -hmm. and perhaps millions of deaths away. And so if we want to go the herd immunity route and just let this thing pass through naturally, we would see, you know, maybe about a million deaths from coronavirus itself. And then probably one to 2 million more from non-coronavirus problems because the hospitals are completely overwhelmed. It's not a, it's not a choice that it's not a viable option.
1: Right, so most diseases need a threshold of ninety to ninety five percent of the population to be immune before herd immunity starts working, and so we don't know exactly what that threshold would be for this uh coronavirus, but that means you know ninety to ninety five percent of the population would need to be infected before we start seeing herd immunity. Um, so think about those numbers of cases. Uh, those numbers of deaths associated with that number of cases, so it's not an easy or quick thing. So more people know someone
0: who's tested positive for this and has had either a mild or 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 severe case. The people who've recovered from COVID nineteen can they go back to life like before? Is it safe for them to go? Uh, you know, well, if the, if movie theaters were open, or I mean, could they go back to? life
1: before the pandemic? That's another caveat with herd immunity, right? So that assumes that once you're infected, you're actually protected for a long time. And we don't really know this for the coronavirus at this point. How long antibodies last, how long you're protected for, the virus has only been around for a few months. So we don't actually know those answers yet. Um, Yeah, so I don't, I don't know if, if people who've been infected in the past could go go back to normal. I know we're seeing detectable antibodies disappear quite quickly. Um, does that mean they're susceptible again? We, we don't really know yet, but people do lose detectable antibodies quickly. And that is that is concerning because a lot of the diseases where we do see this herd immunity, the detectable antibodies stay present for, for decades. Um, so we still have a lot of unanswered questions.
2: The other problem with that is the is that our interventions right now, mask wearing, social distancing, those are community level interventions. And when people do not participate in that, it decreases participation broadly. And so I wear a mask for my own protection to protect others, but then also to model the behavior I want other people to to, to display. I want other people wearing masks around me. I want other people taking precautions with their social distancing and to to abandon that because you've been infected is is a bit selfish.
0: Did I read correctly that the virus has mutated?
2: Viruses always mutate. You know, and and they always always mutate. What we don't know, there's there's been one report, um scientific report that suggested that there was a mutation that has become more dominant and then they've hypothesized that it's more dominant because it's um because it's more infectious, but we don't know that yet.
0: So if viruses mutate and we're looking to have a vaccine for this, is it going to be the kind of vaccine that has to change every
1: season, like the flu vaccine, because it's, it's changing? Well, that depends on what part of the virus exactly changes. And so typically our bodies make the strongest immune system or immune response to a particle on the outside of of the virus or bacteria. And so in the case of the coronavirus, it's something called the spike protein. Um, And so if the spike protein doesn't change very much, then we may not need a vaccine every year, even if other parts of the virus do change. But if the spike protein does mutate a lot, then we would need to see changes in the vaccine.
0: Do you consider that we're in the first wave, or is the first wave over? Is there a second wave
1: coming? Well, we're certainly in a wave, um, I, the, at least in the United States. Um, you know, analysis years later, will decide whether it's all been one wave, two waves. Um, there will be, in my opinion, many more cases in the fall, um, whether it's a, another wave or, or what have you it, it is to be decided.
2: And the, the concept of waves comes back from hundreds of years ago, right? So the way that measles would, would flow through island populations before vaccines, the way that the great influenza flowed through America with these two distinct transmission periods. Since then, our, through globalization and connectivity, we, our society is so much more mobile and so much more connected that it might just be one big wave that'll hit us and constantly beat us down.
0: We talked before, um previously about flattening the curve, and we've heard that phrase a lot, and New York has you know flattened the curve. Is that the same thing as the wave?
1: Yes, that, uh, we're trying to you know prevent the wave from being as tall as it could be. Um and again, that goes to looking at the health system. And so uh, if we can keep the curve relatively flat, Fewer cases, new cases every day, then we can allow the health system to still function. And so even though we may see the same number of cases over over time, if there's fewer all at once, then the health system can function more properly.
0: Well, let me ask you about what you think fall will be like for central New Yorkers. And Dr. Kamash, you said you expect there'll be more cases in the fall. Mm-hmm. Why, why is that?
1: Well, um, Coronaviruses in general have a seasonality, and so there's a a bit of a debate whether that seasonality is due to human behavior, weather conditions, or kind of a combination. But regardless, especially in central New York, in the fall and winter, we go inside a lot. We have to be inside because of the temperatures. And so that close quarter behavior is very conducive to transmission of this virus.
0: So even with our social
1: distancing and masking, the circumstances are gonna change. Mm -hmm. And so masking and social distancing becomes even more important as we have to be inside with other people.
2: And and two big things happen in the fall and the university students return and uh, the kids go back to school. And so our social contacts at schools will increase and then with the universities, we'll have people coming from around the country could increase. And so those big human movement events could precipitate increased transmission.
0: So do you think schools and colleges will be able to hold classes in person like like last
1: fall before the pandemic? I think a lot of schools and colleges will be able to hold some in-person classes. It will not look like last fall at all. It will definitely look different and be different Um than last fall. How long do you think we'll be wearing masks? I personally think we should consider wearing masks inside for all of cold and flu season, uh, especially if you've been exposed or are feeling sick or can't tell if it's allergies or or whatnot. Um, you know, this won't work just for the coronavirus. This will work for all sorts of common cold, influenza to reduce transmission.
0: Well, another thing that I think of in the fall is, you know, the the typical flu season is upon us. So can you anticipate what that's going to
1: be like with COVID-19 still circulating? Right. So there there is going to be a double burden of disease. So it's really important to get your flu vaccine, get it early. I mean, it won't protect you from coronavirus, but it will protect you from influenza and the symptoms caused by both are very similar: fever, shortness of breath, coughing. Right. So, if we can eliminate as many cases of influenza as possible, that will help the the health system cope with the coronavirus cases.
0: How soon do you think people are going to be able to safely dine inside a restaurant?
2: I would I would wait until there's a vaccine before dining inside. Um, if we if we do get to a state, and it's possible, I think, to get to a state of disease elimination within, within more rural counties, then it would be safe. Um, we just have to manage reimportation. And so the the way, how do we get toward a more free society with coronavirus? That's wear our masks, social distance now, and then do contact tracing, aggressive contact tracing. And if we can do those things and really drive transmission away, then we can enjoy some of these freedoms and luxuries that that we miss.
0: So if you said no to indoor dining, I'm assuming you won't be getting on an airplane anytime soon either. Is that correct? Correct. Well, I mean, some people still have to get from point A to point B, and it's a great distance. Is, Is it safer, do you think? Are there safer ways to get there? Or are there sort of some emergencies where you have to, you have
2: to go on a plane. So we're, we certainly need to travel when, when need arises, right? So if we, if we live far away from family, we need to see family, if we have emergencies for other things, what we need to do is we need to reduce our, our voluntary travel. And so when and we all need to look at our lives and say, what can I change? What do I need first for my mental social health, for, for economics and things? And then what can I take out in terms of social contacts that could help decrease the transmission? And so for, for some families, that might mean plane travel is, is a non-necessity. For others, it might mean it's a, a necessity. But it's, it's something that we should all look at and, and adjust our lives accordingly.
0: Well, that's one of the things, talking about 1918 and the Spanish flu, there wasn't people weren't as mobile. I don't think, right? They, I mean, they didn't travel the distances, certainly, that we might be inclined to travel. Uh, and look what they still had to deal with.
2: It's It's yeah, got to be think, made
0: worse for us with all the moving around.
2: Yeah, and it's the speed of that travel that's the scariest part, right? So, you know, you had railway travel and ship travel during the 1918 pandemic that spread this throughout the country and across the globe. Um, but it wasn't as quick as as the air travel. And so the, the influenza basically rolled through, not quite naturally, but almost naturally through the population. And it carried a terrible toll. Um, and so now with, with air travel, it just makes it more difficult to decrease transmission.
0: So do you anticipate uh, our community may see other closures as if, if we get hit with more cases of this? Are we gonna are we likely to see hospitals having to postpone elective surgeries again, or
1: things shutting down again? I think so. If we see a lot more cases and that's going to depend on your local epidemiology or local numbers of cases, but yes, if there's an increase in cases that surpasses the health system capabilities, they'll have to start uh you know reducing elective surgeries and other things, and hopefully not essential procedures, but that's a possibility.
0: Well, what would you advise ordinary people to do in their daily lives, and and what should we sort of be on the lookout for in news coverage to know about what's happening with the pandemic? What are the the high points to keep an eye out for?
2: So the, the biggest thing is to not get complacent. This is a marathon, it's not a sprint. The broad shutdown orders were designed to give us time to get contact tracing up and running. And to really, it was almost like a panic button because things were so bad. And we're past that now here in New York. But it doesn't mean we're out of the woods. We're not not completely free from transmission and we're not free from risk. And this thing can roar back with a vengeance if we allow it. And so to not lose complacency and treat this as a marathon, and, and to dis- decrease social contacts not only with distance but also with time. And so, if it's if we need to visit someone for our mental or emotional health, we'll visit them less often, as opposed to visit not visiting them at all, or, or or trying to go from full social contact to no social contact, so to speak. And so, that's the biggest thing: is to to really treat this as the marathon that it will be, and to prepare ourselves for a long. Um, 2020 and 2021.
0: It sounds like you're saying this is at least temporarily the new normal for
1: us, living within these restrictions. Yes, I think so. Um, definitely for this fall, probably a bit longer, but we'll have to see how vaccine development and the uh, um, pandemic play out.
0: So over the summer, we've been able to, you know, get outdoors more easily and and do things you know with the benefit of you know the air dissipating our our uh, droplets or whatever what about winter sports are we i mean are we going to be able to go skiing uh and do things like that this winter
2: i would think outdoor ice skating and outdoor skiing cross-country downhill you know enjoyed within family units would be a great thing snowshoeing as well um building snowmen or snow people and and snow forts, all those things. Where we need to take care is indoor situations where we're inside. And there may be an increased transition outside with the colder weather that allows the virus to survive um, outdoors a little bit more. And so we just need to be careful. We don't need to, we don't want to become hermits. You know, that's not helpful for anyone. And it's not healthy as well. And so we need to look at it cautiously and carefully.
0: Well, before we wrap up, I want to ask what gives each of you hope as the world confronts this pandemic?
1: Well, I'm hopeful at the speed of the vaccine development. Um, so most vaccines take over a decade from basic science to licensure. And we're already seeing several candidates moving into phase three clinical trials, which is you know very close to getting approval. And so to me, that's that we're able to identify a, a potential vaccine candidate and test it safely and quickly um, within a few months is very hopeful.
2: And, I, and another thing that our team is working on, both Brittany and I, is an early warning system based on wastewater. And we have hope that you know, over the next few months, we'll be able to understand transmission trends early enough to where we can have a more free society and then a warning when transmission increases to then, you know, tamp down on our social contacts. And so that would be my hope is that we can, we're willing to, to invest in the public health infrastructure to enable our society to not have to go through this again.
0: I don't want to run out of time, but I want to ask you to explain the wastewater project you're involved in. Is this for different communities?
2: Yeah, so we're currently, we're in about eight different counties across upstate New York and we're hoping to start a New York State pilot soon um, with the Department of Health and it's um, it's a way to understand very quickly and affect effect and and inexpensively what transmission is like in a community and it gives an early warning for increased transmission and so it's it's uh, getting ready to we're about ready to have a website launch here in a few weeks And then um, working on the epidemiological modeling to to tailor public health responses, you know, when there's caution required or when there's warning or when there's an alert. And it's perhaps similar to when algal blooms happen and people send out an alert to stay away from the beaches. We'll be able to send out alerts to say there's an uptick in transmission. Be careful. Um, Take care in these neighborhoods.
0: And so you're able to study sewage or wastewater and... If a community has, uh, or if a person has COVID nineteen, they shed the virus in their waste.
2: So not all infections do shed but, um, viral RNA in their waste, but um, about half do, and so we can pick up population level trends. And so it's not the it's not the best way to pick out individuals, but it is a great way to understand what's happening in the population.
0: Thank you to Dr. David Larson and Dr. Brittany Kamush, epidemiologists from Syracuse University's Falk College. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
3: Nancy Geyer is a writer from Washington, DC, whose work has appeared in the Georgia Review, the Iowa Review, and New England Review. She sent us a poignant essay about caring for a parent who is experiencing cognitive decline. Here is her essay, Heathens for the Day, which reminds us how illness spreads suffering throughout a family. When I arrive at his house with a suitcase, my father leads me upstairs to Elle's bedroom and says, I trust this will be satisfactory? He sometimes speaks in such formalities, jokester that he can be, but these days I'm not sure what's what. Is he playing the proprietor of a rooming house because he needs time to figure out which daughter I am? Should I pretend it's only a joke and act the paying guest? Elle, my half-sister and 29 years my junior, is away at college. It's late in the evening, so I read for a while in her bed, Then turn off her bedside lamp. There are glow-in-the-dark stars on her ceiling, as there were on mine long ago. I can't discern any familiar constellations, though. Maybe Elle, unlike me, attempted to arrange the stars herself, our father sensing even then that he was not up to the task. Or maybe what's up there is accurate, a part of the sky I don't know. In the morning when I go downstairs, my father looks befuddled by my presence, I don't want to risk offending him by stating who I am, so I casually ask if he's brought in the newspaper. He looks in his study, where there's a note on a whiteboard to remind him that his wife is away, and concludes that he hasn't. After opening the front door and peeking out, he puts on his raincoat and unfurls an umbrella to fetch the paper from the far end of the front walk. You think they could have tossed the paper a little closer to the door, I say, when he returns dripping, My words are met with silence. After I shower and dress, my father, who now sleeps on the first floor, comes upstairs and calls out, Hello! I go out into the hallway to let him know that he and I are the only ones at home. He's changed into a jacket and bow tie. Oh no, he thinks we're going to church. The newspaper must have reminded him. He relies on it as a calendar, somehow remembering to drop it into the recycling bin each night but I'm not sure how to get to his church. I doubt he even goes anymore. I fear that my father, a retired professor and Methodist minister, will tell me they're expecting him, that he must take his place in the choir. But instead he says brightly, so we're going to be heathens today? Thank God. Yes, I say, we're going to be heathens today. I ask him if he's had breakfast and he says he can't remember, so I make toast and he sprinkles it with cinnamon sugar. When we finished eating, he clears our dishes from the table and washes them. He never did these tasks while I was growing up. Perhaps running water and a plate in his hands give him a purchase on the here and now. An hour or so later, I remind my father that he wanted to shave. He goes upstairs to the master bathroom. I wait a few minutes and then go up to see if he's found his razor and shaving cream. I wasn't looking for them, he replies, clearly annoyed. Stubble agitates him, makes him imagine a full beard. So I gently tell him again that he had told me he wanted to shave. Silence. Later, back downstairs, when I ask him if he'd shaved, he feels about his face and says with obvious satisfaction, Why, yes, I did. This is how the rest of the morning goes, and then the afternoon, each of us feeling our way. For dinner, I take the easy way out and order in Chinese food, my father's favorite. He begins his meal by unwrapping and cracking open his cookie. A child might do this, reach for the cookie first, but my father's main interest seems to be his fortune. You can have anything you want if you want it desperately enough, he reads aloud. That's not very helpful, I say. No, it isn't, he responds. We eat the main course, and then he picks up the fortune again, as if for the first time. Not true, he finally says. But before that sour thought has a chance to hang around, an ice cream truck goes by to the tune of Old MacDonald Had a Farm. My father leaves his chair and rushes to the piano to accompany the truck as long as it lingers in the neighborhood, which is for quite a while. He plays and plays and we sing and sing, our song stuck on repeat.
0: This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, how sleep problems may interrupt recovery from stroke. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.